from the middle of October to the middle of November, um, these bucks are traveling a hundred miles, over a hundred miles, some of them. And, and they're doing that just by slow, steady movements that are just 24 seven, basically. It may be warm. It may be in the seventies, but they're just plodding along at, you know, half a mile an hour. Their average speed is really slow. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and I hope you guys had a happy Thanksgiving and got to spend some time with friends and family over the weekend, and hopefully, hopefully got to spend a little time in the outdoors. Um, I know I did and, and enjoyed that thoroughly. Hey, but I'm looking forward to this week's podcast episode. Uh, we're going to be diving into a, a hot topic among deer hunters and that's how various weather factors impact deer movement. And I couldn't think of anyone better to get on the show to discuss this than Dr. Dwayne Diefenbach of Penn State University's Deer Forest Study. Uh, this particular study's been going on for, I think, 10 years now. And the project has produced just a lot of really cool and, and interesting information about deer movement in relation to a, a whole variety of factors, including the rut, uh, hunting pressure, and of course, weather. And so we get uh, we get into the impact of, of rain, wind, warm temperatures during the rut, and of course, every hunter's favorite weather condition, a cold front. And you, you might be surprised at how some of these weather factors impact, or in some cases don't impact, deer movement. So be sure to stick around for that discussion. Hey, before we get started though, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Matthews Archery. Matthews recently released their all-new lift bow. At sub four pounds, this next generation of Matthews hunting bow utilizes the all-new switch weight X-cam, delivering speeds up to 348 feet per second while remaining deadly quiet. Uh, the lift features reimagined RPD limbs to minimize post-shot vibration, a new top axle system for lightweight stability, and it's equipped with the all-new match bowstrings to eliminate stretch, serving separation, and peep rotation. If you haven't checked out the all-new Matthews Lift yet, hey, make a trip to your local dealer to try it out or head over to MatthewsInc.com. Hey, and don't forget, there's just a little over a month left in our Gear for Deer sweepstakes. Uh, that fundraiser features a pile of prizes from our friends at Quiet Cat, Performance Outdoors, First Light, and Tethered including a premium Illinois November rut hunt for 2024. Uh, you can use either a gun or a bow. It's your choice. It's going to come with the new Quiet Cat e-bike that comes in First Light camo. Uh, over $1,500 in First Light gift cards will be given away. And a, a few full saddle hunting setups from our friends at Tethered. And all the prizes were generously donated by these great companies. So, Every bit of the money raised will go directly to NDA's mission to ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. So be sure to pause this episode and head over to DeerAssociation.com slash gear for deer to get your chances today. Hey, and with that, guys, let's jump on the phone with Dwayne to discuss how weather factors influence deer movement. 
Well, hey, Dwayne, welcome back to the uh, Deer Season 365 podcast. Uh, I, de- I definitely appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to, to come on here once again to talk about deer and, and in this case, how they respond to various weather factors. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, and this should be a fun conversation. Yeah, this is always, uh, you know, a, a hot topic whenever, you know, we at the NDA uh, put out any kind of, of articles or, or information on this. It, it's always a big talking point. I think it's it's one thing, you know, deer hunters have a lot of interest in, in things that impact deer movement and, and, you know, always looking for that little advantage or a little bit of knowledge to, to help them be better deer hunters. So I know this one will be uh, well received. Before we actually dive into all the, the data, though, I know you've been on before and you discussed this on a previous episode, but for those who might be hearing you for the first time, can you give us just a, a little background information on the Deer Force study that, that you guys have going on there at uh, Penn State, where all this information that you're going to be talking about comes from? Sure. Uh, what we call the Deer Forest Study, I tell everyone that it really should be the Forest Deer Study, but it rolls off the tongue better to say Deer Forest. Um, it's it's a long-term project. We started it in 2013. And the motivation uh, was, was the fact that Pennsylvania was one of the first states to use forest habitat conditions as some uh, use some metrics from that that they get from the Forest Service to help make deer management decisions. Um, in the early 2000s, the agency had reduced deer numbers by oh almost uh, by about 23 percent over three years, three or four years. And although there are some responses that we see in in forest uh, understory conditions there still was not a lot of change. And so the time came to really say, okay, um, maybe it's not just deer. Because if you had asked me 20 years ago, what's the biggest problem with our forests in Pennsylvania? I would say hands down, it's deer and the fact that there are a lot of them and they eat a lot of vegetation. But with the management changes that the agency made, um, I'm not sure that's the case anymore. And, and the agency agreed with me. And, and also this project is, is funded by the Game Commission and the Bureau of Forestry because they have similar questions. Um, they own about two million, over 2 million acres in the state. And the Game Commission, I think, is well past 1.5 million these days. And so they want, both agencies wanted information to make better management decisions, either for, for deer or for the forest. And so this project um, is long term because vegetation just does not change that fast. And we found that it's taken at least seven to 10 years for us to start to see some responses to some of the experiments that we've done. And um, and so we've been monitoring deer um, and monitoring vegetation since 2013. Uh, This project will be going through 2026. So we'll have well over a decade's worth of data by the time we're done. And so the objective is to better understand the influence of deer herbivory, that is their eating vegetation, uh, soil conditions, and competing vegetation and how those three factors interact. And I should mention that when I refer to competing vegetation, things like ferns and mountain laurel, 
and other vegetation that could inhibit tree regeneration because either they get dense root layers or they shade them out so they they outcompete tree seedlings and and those conditions can influence what we see in the forest understory. Um, but I really think now and some of our preliminary results that we're getting suggest that there are actually strong interactions and and that's what we're trying to understand. So sorry for the long-winded um, explanation, but you know this this current research is really the you know culmination of work that I started you know, in 2000. So, you know, over 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I understand how you would monitor uh, the the vegetation and, and the changes in that over time, but how, how are you monitoring the, the deer themselves? I mean, what, what all are you looking at as far as the, yeah, the deer? So we have, we have four study areas. Um, two of them are in the Oak Hickory mixed Oak, um, uh, forest type and two are up in northern Pennsylvania and in the northern hardwoods type, which is, you know, uh, maple, um, birch uh, type of habitat. And we, we catch deer every winter or we try and get, oh, four to six females and um, uh, uh, radio collared and, you know, three to five um, males radio collared so we can monitor them. Uh, look at their harvest rates, um, movements. Um, we need some of that information in order to estimate uh, deer density on our study areas. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work that we are, or sort of stuff we cover on the blog is really what I call uh, bonus or serendipity uh, uh, data because um, the GPS collars, these days, um, they communicate with satellites. We can communicate with the caller. We can change the schedule at which they get locations. And just the volumes of data are, are just uh, orders of magnitude more than what we could have collected 20 years ago. And so um, there's, there's a lot of information about deer movements and behavior that we can get at with these radio collars that really don't even relate to the objectives the you know the core objectives of the deer forest study so we're just trying to take advantage of this opportunity and and the other thing we like to do is with the blog try and share it with with um with the general public and and hunters and people interested in deer um to just share that information cuz science is so slow i mean you know we we work on a project for 3 to 5 years and it takes 2 years to get it published and and we just wanted to get share things more quickly and we can do that with the blog and and podcasts like what we're doing today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed following the blog and of course we've we've shared a lot of that information uh, on our social channels over the years. It's just uh yeah, it, it it's really cool to all those uh like you said kind of side benefits of, of the research you're doing. I I'm certain that's um you know, that's that's allowed you guys to draw a lot of attention to to the actual goal of your project, you know, the, the core, I guess, of what you're actually trying to accomplish. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I enjoy following it. There's a lot of, a lot of great information and that's, uh, you know, why I wanted to get you on here today. I know one of the things that you guys have looked at, um, over time was, was weather factors and, and how those weather factors may be impacting the deer movement or at least 
the deer that that you guys are have collared and are monitoring. And so mm-hmm. I thought it'd be good to to get you on here and and talk about that and uh, yeah, just how our uh, listeners as hunters can can maybe relate and and gain some some knowledge from from what you guys are seeing out there. So. Yeah, we can we can get into it. We've we've tried to look at wind and rain and moon and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, you know, we'll just kind of run down the list here of some common weather factors. And uh, this one seems appropriate to start with. I'm looking out the the window of my office here and we're getting a good soaking rain today. So uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about um, rain and and how it might impact deer movement. And before, before you actually, I guess, get into, you know, what you found or what you saw, um, can you just talk about, I guess, how you went about looking at this? I mean, how did you how did you tease this out of the data, I guess? Yeah, so our our deer um, can get locations uh, usually when we're looking at weather events and that sort of thing. We like to use locations that are at least, um, you know, separated by no more than an hour or maybe three hours. And so we can look at. Um, we can look at the speed at which deer travel. We can look at the distance that they travel. And those are usually the metrics that we looked at because they're the easiest to, to calculate and to, um, you know, to sort of summarize and see if there are patterns uh, in their behavior. Okay. And I, if I remember right, but before you guys actually dove in and, and looked at the, the, de- the deer movement data, um, you actually reached out to to hunters and surveyed some hunters to get an idea of of what impact they expected rain to have on deer movement. And uh, can can you yeah. talk about that and kind of what what hunters expected to see? Yeah, so it it's a pretty non scientific survey. Basically, we asked readers of the blog to you know take a survey monkey, fill out a survey monkey questionnaire on the internet, and we asked them all sorts of questions like. How do deer respond to cold fronts or warm fronts? How, how do they respond to a light rain or a heavy rain or a continual rain? Or how do they respond to wind, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, strong winds or light winds or dead calm, uh, just to get a sense of, uh, you know, what the conventional wisdom is out there. And, and that kind of gave us, uh, you know, some ideas on, on how to focus our analyses to try and um, address whether that uh, conventional wisdom uh, has something to it or maybe our data couldn't show anything. Okay. And, and what was the, uh, I guess, the, the common belief among the blog readers about rain and how it might impact deer movement? Well, I think the consensus was that a steady, continual rain would suppress deer movements. And, um, and so we, uh, you know, I usually what I did was I'd have some undergrads that gave them an opportunity to learn how to analyze data and summarize it. And they went through that stuff. And basically the take home message is they could find very little impact of rain on, on how far deer traveled, um, except, um, they pointed out that males are appear to be wimps more than females because they they could detect no effect of females 
uh, movements changing or, you know, distance traveled or anything based on rain. But if it rained, the males were less likely to move. Don't ask me why. <laughs> well, oh man, that was my next question. <laughs> oh, but yeah, my wife would say, you know, it's probably, you know, like men are always complaining more when they get a cold than women. And it's probably <laughs> the same thing with male deer, but really, I, I have, um, I really can't, I can't explain it. Yeah. And this was in October. Um, you know, one of the problems is usually we get, it's not really a problem, but it, it constrains our analyses is, um, uh, well, first of all, in the summertime, you don't get continual rain, right? It's at least in Pennsylvania, it's in the fall and winter when you get uh, those in the summertime, we just mostly have thunderstorms. And, um, but, but you're, it's always confounded all these analyses by the rut. So we're usually restricting our analyses to September or early October, because by, by the third and fourth week of October, the rut is kicking in. And then it doesn't matter what the weather is because what's driving deer behavior is, is the breeding season. So we've, all of our analyses, we've focused on that September, late September, early October, which co coincides nicely, you know, with the early archery season. Um, uh, but, but that's sort of the limitations of, of when we looked at, um, at these deer patterns. Right. Did you look at, I guess, varying levels of of rain or, you know, as far as like, you know, a heavy rain, if a heavy rain would impact movement more so than just a, you know, just a light um, shower? Yeah. So that's one of the tough things is um, you're going back and using weather data. Um, and, you know, and I get this a lot. Some folks you know, want to know how do deer respond to wind direction? Well, it's easy to look at, you know, you look at weather data and say, okay, so this was a light, you know, windy day, or this was, you know, it rained, you know, over an inch. So it must've been raining for, you know, quite a while. Um, so you're like with the wind, there's no way I could ever look at how wind directions influences deer movements because you know, if you sit on one edge of my field and it's a westerly wind, it's swirling because the wind's coming up over the tops of the trees. And on the other side of the field, it's just a steady airflow from the west because it's coming across the field and there's nothing blocking it. So there's, you know, and topography and all this stuff influences wind direction. So I've never even attempted to look at that. Um, and so we're also limited by you know, really, we, we basically said, okay, if we get, if there's more than, you know, half an inch of rain, then we would call that, you know, a continual rain event, um, that sort of thing. Um, just because otherwise I'd have to be sitting here and, you know, writing out, okay, this is the weather for today, you know, in terms of what a deer hunter is thinking about. Um, and so we kind of have to generalize things. Understood. Yeah. And I, I can definitely understand the, the wind direction thing. Cause as a hunter, I can't, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've, I've picked a spot based on what the, uh, what the weather man said, the, which way the wind was going to be blowing only, only to get out there and find, you know, at that specific location, it, 
it wasn't doing what was uh <laughs> what was advertised so yeah exactly but but you guys did look at at wind um uh, i guess you know how just i guess wind in general uh may impact deer movement that was kind of the next thing i wanted to touch on and uh again i guess before we get, before we get into the actual data the movement data um what did uh, what did your readers think how did they think wind was going to impact um, deer movement. Most of them felt that um, deer movements would change if there was a strong breeze. Um, so we we classified things as a light breeze, like you might feel it on your cheek, on your skin, um, a gentle breeze where leaves are moving, a moderate, you know, it might kick up dust. Um, a fresh breeze that small trees might be moving and a strong breeze, you know, you get larger trees swaying and then the all out near gale where, you know, whole trees are, you know, just moving back and forth. And, um, and the majority of people felt that it was a strong breeze um, that would result in changes in deer movement. Okay. So you want the answer now? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, <laughs> so what is interesting is that um, basically we saw a response um, more so in the daytime that with even a light breeze. So whether it was if it was calm, they actually moved less than when you had any kind of breeze. And of course, we only looked at. Um, uh, there really are not a lot of events that have those really strong movements. Um, so we're just looking at uh, barely moving, a light breeze, a gentle breeze, or a moderate breeze. Because um, those, you know, I was talking about a strong breeze and a fresh breeze that really rarely occurs. So to even get enough data to look at that wasn't possible. Um, but what they, Basically, the conclusion was, is that um, like for females during the day, if there's any kind of air movement, if it's not calm, they tend to move a little bit more, um, except in the nighttime, it appeared that they would move less. Um, and, and males showed a similar pattern, although it wasn't nearly as strong, um, strong a relationship. Um, and so, you know, I don't know how to interpret that. Um, I've, my experience has been my, just my personal observations, you know, is when you have a really windy day, um, you know, deer's hearing is an important sense and it's really limits that. And, and I just seem to, that deer seem more skittish in that. I mean, I see it, uh, I, I'm a big grouse hunter. And if it's a windy day, I know I'm much less likely to walk up on a grouse. But they're more likely to flush, you know, farther away. And I think I'm just wondering, I'm just speculating is that with any sort of breeze, um, there's going to be noise associated with leaves rustling and that sort of thing that that limits their ability to either hear, um, you know, danger or to sense where exactly pinpoint where that danger is coming from um so they you know may tend to move more but um you know i haven't done any experiments so 
again, we're just looking at observations and speculating here, but, um, but anyway, there's something going on for sure. Right. So, so it just took, you know, just, a, I guess a minimal amount of air movement seemed to increase deer movement. Yep. During the daytime. And that's right. That's, those are the, would be the legal hunting hours. So you could expect, you know, slightly more, uh, distance moved, um, on a, uh, on some sort of wind movement day, which, you know, as most days, there's some sort of wind going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, just anecdotally, I know it seems like those days when you do get out there and it's just like dead, you know, you, you, there's no air stirring, you can hear everything. And I think, I think, man, this is going to be great because I'll be able to hear a deer coming from a long ways away. You know, there's no, uh, no wind, no breeze, no leaves blowing, but <laughs> it seems like I rarely see anything on those type of days where yeah, just nothing yeah. seems to be stirring. But um, yeah, other yeah, than squirrels. It's opening day of deer season in Pennsylvania and there's, you know, 500,000 hunters in the woods and then, then they're moving for sure. <laughs> yeah, regardless of the wind. Uh, I guess, you know, and, and this is just, I know this is speculation, but, you, you, you know, you think that could vary, I guess, depending on where you're at, you know, what, the, what region you're in and, and the topography, that kind of thing, as far as how that wind might impact deer movement? Yeah, um, I suppose. Um, I, you know, I don't have any, I mean, that's a good question I probably should pose to our readers of our blog is how do you think it would vary? Um, yeah, I, I'm at a loss on that one. Yeah, I mean, I owe yeah. some hypotheses. I, I just figured I'd throw that out there. Obviously, like you mentioned earlier, that can certainly impact directional, you know, which which way the wind's coming from, you know, with thermals and, and, you know, the topography and everything like that, which might impact which which way they're moving. But, you know, I guess, uh, you know, we'll need we'll we'll need some some further research to figure out whether or not that that varies depending on on topography or, or where you're at in the country. But yeah, I mean, we've never. You know, so our study areas have two different major differences in topography. Our southern ones um, are in what's called the Ridge and Valley region. So we have long linear ridges um, that are forested. And oftentimes the valleys um, are where uh, agriculture occurs and, and human developments, houses and small towns and such. Um, and then our northern study areas is in what's called the Allegheny Plateau, which um, you'd think it's mountainous, but really what it is, it's a it's a flat plain that the rivers and water eroded valleys. So when you get up on top, the tops of the quote unquote mountains are just flat. And then you have it's dissected by these drainages and such. So very different topography. And I'll be honest with you, we never asked the question, um, does it differ? Um, do the deer responses differ in those two areas? So maybe that's something I need to go back through and, and see um, if there are differences. Um, because those are, those are major topographical differences between those two study areas. Right. Have you, I mean, aside from weather factors, just ha- have you noticed or looked at you know, differences in just overall the amount, I guess, of deer movement between those two different regions? I mean, do deer tend um, to move more or longer distances in, in one region as opposed to the other? 
No, um, really haven't seen differences in home range. Um, they're both large tracts of contiguous forest. Um, we do, the only time I would say there are consistent differences is because our northern study areas are in a large contiguous tract of pretty much forest, um, you know, 90 plus percent forest. Whereas the Ridge and Valley region, it's probably about 60% forested. And so some of our females, um, when they're uh, giving birth to fawns, will travel out of the forest and their, and their normal home range to give birth in ag lands. Um, but other than that, um, there's not, not a huge difference. I mean, maybe, you know, the home ranges are a little bit smaller, um, not on our study areas, but if you look at Ridge and Valley as a whole, they have slightly smaller home ranges than up in what we call the big woods of Pennsylvania. And I think that's a combination of availability of food resources. So in in the Ridge and Valley region, like I said, there's lots of ag in the valleys. And so better food resources, better soils in the valleys, you see slightly smaller home ranges than you do in our large tracts of contiguous forests, which have poor quality soils, um, you know, less food availability. So they need to travel a little bit further to, to get the resources they need to survive and reproduce. Um, so there are some differences, but not, not huge ones, at least on our study areas. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, kind of getting back to the, to the weather side of things. Um, I know you guys also looked at or wrote a blog post about how warm temperatures um, during the rut might impact deer movement and, and rut behavior, because I know that's that's kind of a commonly held belief. You know, this time of year, you get a warm snap and everybody worried about whether or not that's going to shut down the rut or, or, you know, shut down breeding activity or maybe shift breeding activity to the to nighttime where you're not going to get to to get to, you know, benefit from it. Um, so let's talk about that. And, and again, before I guess we look at the data, how, how did you go about testing this or, or teasing this out? Yeah, a few years ago, we had a really warm snap um, in October and November. I mean, really warm. And, um, and temperatures went up above normal by several degrees for like a week and before they dropped back down. And so it was, you know, an opportunity to say, okay, do we see any changes in in their movement um, as a result of that warm snap? And um, and the the short answer is no. Um, but but just to point out, you know, this the breeding season and breeding behavior cannot wait or or shouldn't depend on local conditions. And those local conditions could be, you know, moon phase or moonlight or or weather conditions, because um, those conditions are not going to give you any prediction whatsoever about what the weather is going to be next spring. And so the white-tailed deer has, and many other species, has evolved to time their behaviors, whether it's migration or breeding or what have you according to day length. 
and it's the day length that drives breeding behavior. And and we've looked at we've looked at this in Pennsylvania um, back in the early two thousands. Uh, we made major changes to the sex and age structure of the population. And, you know, there were some various hypotheses that you could look at about the biology of the species. You could say, okay, so we have more older bucks. Maybe the breeding is more concentrated. They're more efficient. Um, uh, uh, maybe there's, there's fewer deer. Perhaps females are in better condition because there's more food available per deer. Um, that they respond uh, and, and somehow change timing of breeding. And the bottom line is we had over 10 years of data, and I think 12 years, 12 or 13 years of data, and basically it doesn't change from one year to the next. I can tell you that the median date where the date where about half the females are bred is right around November 13th every year. Um, very little variability. So that's just to say that um, that the short answer to this whole thing is that no, a warm warm spell does not shut down the rut. Um, and but but I do want to um, you know there's a caveat that I give whenever I say that that the moon and all that stuff doesn't affect the rut. Um, that's because I'm looking at data that's collected. You know, it could be collected across the whole state of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm looking at, um, you know, a whole bunch of deer um, and looking at their average movements. Um, and sometimes the average isn't relevant to your specific area where you're hunting. So the activity you could see um, related to weather in the rut could be due to a whole bunch of factors that related to, are there a lot of females in the area that are in estrus? If not, you may not see as much rut activity. Um, how do food resources affect the distribution of females? Um, if there's lots of acorns, they don't have to move very much. So um, yeah, there's just, I think a whole host of factors that influence what individual hunters see when they're in their tree stand. Um, during the rut. But the bottom line is that from a population standpoint, um, there's, there's not much variability. And that breeding, that breeding happens due to day length, that breeding behavior. Um, it is also influenced by body condition. So for example, fawns, um, they about half of, they breed about two weeks later than adult females because a fawn has to hit a certain body weight before it's going to come into estrus. And they, and as those fawns are growing, some of them get big enough um, that in November and December, they actually come into estrus. So, um, so that does influence it. But the bottom line is females want to give birth to fawns in the spring early enough so that they can grow to be big enough to survive the next winter, but not so early that they could succumb to like a cold snap in, you know, April or something like that, that, you know, could cause a lot of mortality. And the only predictor is day length because their breeding season or their gestation period is about 200 days. So, um, 
you know, the peak of the rut is November 13th, and that means the peak of birthing is right around Memorial Day, the uh, June 1, end of May. Um, yeah, so long-winded answer to say that at a population level, um, breeding doesn't change from one year to the next, um, and, and it's not influenced um, by weather factors or anything like that. But it could be influenced a lot by local conditions and how many doe and how many buck and like I said, all all sorts of things that influence their movements and distribution. Right. Yeah. And we, and we talk about that a lot. I mean, during the rut, you know, you could if, if the property you're hunting, if if there's a doe in estrus or does in estrus, you know, you might see more deer and, and have the best hunt of your life. And, you know, the guy next door <laughs> might not be seeing anything and think, boy, this is terrible. The You know, nothing. The rut's not happening. It's just all like you said there. It's kind of situational and, and being in the, the right place at the right time. Yeah. I mean, we just wrote a blog post. Um, I just kind of summarized, you know, buck movements um, from September going into October. Um, and and then um, I, I well, I took it up through last weekend um, or the weekend before. Uh, which was, you know, around the 13th. So we basically hit the peak and you can actually see that some of these bucks, um, there's a lot of variability even among individual bucks, but on average, they all peaked um, right around that second week of first or second week in November and their movements are actually starting to drop off now. But some bucks have really dropped off and some bucks have not. So, um, you know, it's like, you know, shooting two feet to the left of a deer and then shooting two feet to the right and claiming you got them because on average it was right in the middle of the deer was standing. Yeah. Well, I, as a Southerner, I'm glad to hear that warm weather doesn't shut down rut activity because uh, the deer would have a hard time breeding down here in South Georgia if they had to, to rely on cold weather to, to get it done. So Yeah. Um, but I can't remember, did you, did you guys look at whether or not, obviously it doesn't impact the timing as far as on the calendar when it occurs, did it impact that warm snap? Did it impact, I guess, time of day? Did did movement shift to more nighttime when it was cooler? Or did the movement pretty much stay, you know, dawn and dusk peaks like you would expect? Yeah, I, I wasn't able to discern any difference. Um uh the the bucks it, it's been really fun with this research to just look at their movements um those bucks are just slow and steady and they're moving 24 7 um over the course of the 30 days you know from from the middle of october to the middle of november um these bucks are traveling 100 miles over 100 miles some of them and and they're doing that just by slow steady movements um that are just 24 7 basically so they're not, you know, it, it may be warm, it may be in the 70s, but they're just plodding along at, you know, half a mile an hour. Um, it's it's not fat there. You know, their average speed is really slow. You know, if you're if you're at a brisk pace on a sidewalk, you can do four miles an hour. Um, a leisurely pace at one or two miles an hour is not hard. And and they're going at like a half a mile. So that's on average, it's just a stroll through the woods they're just doing it 
24-7. Right. Okay. So, yeah, you're not you're not seeing, you know, a, a shutdown during the, the warm day and then all the movement happening at night. It's just a, a steady movement across yep. the, the clock. No, oh, gotcha. Well, most most recently, you guys did a blog post on cold fronts, and uh, that's that's the article that really sparked the idea to get you get you back on here to talk about these weather impacts, uh, because this is probably the the touchiest subject at, of all when it comes to deer behavior in relation to weather factors. Um, we we posted some articles and stuff on on cold fronts and, and the lack of any evidence that that impacts deer movement and. And we always get a lot of hate for that kind of stuff or, or you know, people disagreeing with with what we're saying. Um, but, you know, you guys looked at this as well. So I'd, I'd like to hear, uh, you know, what did you guys say? Did you guys when when we we had a big cold snap? Did did deer movement change or, or you know, time of day or you know, what 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 did you guys see in relation to that? I guess first, again, how did you tease this out? Was this based on a, a recent cold front or? Yeah, so the one thing I'd like to point out is that um it is it is difficult to go back through and say this is when the front came through. So when a cold front comes through, um you're going to see uh changes in wind direction, you're going to see changes in barometric pressure, you might see changes in wind speed, and they're they're pretty typical. Um, and, and meteorologists, if you go on the internet and say, you know, what happens when a cold front passes through, they can tell you all sorts of things. But when you actually go through historical weather data, it is really hard to say, okay, this is when the cold front came through. Um, if there's a meteorologist out there who has an algorithm who says, okay, if you give me hourly temperature, wind speed, wind direction, and barometric pressure, I can tell you when the front passed overhead. I, I'm all ears. Um, so what I ended up doing is I noticed here back in October, and again, this was before the rut kicked in, because once the rut kicks in, it doesn't matter. And it's no point even asking what effect a cold front has on deer behavior. Um, in uh, And so so there was a cold front and so i made some notes okay um it was well the one reason i remembered it is because the crappiest day when the front came through was the one day off i had during the week which was a saturday (laughs) always so um i knew you know friday wasn't going to be too bad it was going to be nice and warm and saturday was windy and rain and crappy the whole day and sunday the sun came out it was cool and uh, and we don't have Sunday hunting in Pennsylvania, so or most Sundays you can't hunt. So um, that was kind of frustrating and, and was easy to stick in my mind. And so my question was, did I see differences in speed or um, total, you know, distance traveled um, or um, and and uh, and look at the days up to the front coming up to the front? including the day that the front was there and then the following day. And, you know, this is just one example, one situation, um, fairly small sample size of bucks. It's about seven, seven or so bucks. Um, 
But my conclusion is that the individual deer behavior is so variable that it would take many instances of fronts to basically say that there's some consistent patterns here. So I'm I'm not willing to say that there is no effect of a front, but I'm not willing to say that there is. Um, some deer hardly move, others deer move. When you look at the average, um, there's not a lot that that I can say that, yeah, they do this before the front and they do this afterwards. So sorry, I I I basically don't have an answer, but it's based on, you know, one cold front and a handful of bucks. Um, and I think it's just the typical nature of, you know, ecological research. There's lots of variability. Variability is a good thing, but it also is a difficult thing to tease out patterns. Right. So for the, I mean, for the seven you looked at, you just, you didn't see a, a big difference one way or the other then in I their mean, movement. Yeah, I, I, I have nothing that I would hang my hat on. Let's put it that way. Um, there, there could be some things going on. Of course, you got that day of rain, so you might expect less movement by bucks that day of rain. But again, um, you know, those analyses with the rain were based on hundreds of days of days with rain and light rain and heavy rain, um, and you know, those differences were not huge. We could detect them statistically, but, um, you know, there's again, a lot of, there's just so much variability, um, that I just don't have enough data with cold fronts to say one way or the other. Right. There's nothing that jumped out at, at me. You know, it's not like, wow, you know, after the front comes through, they're moving everywhere. It's absolutely, that's not a conclusion to draw from these data. Okay, fair enough. And you you kind of mentioned there in passing barometric pressure, and I don't think I've ever seen anything from you guys on that. But have you ever looked at that in relation to deer movement? No, that would you know that would be a good one. You know, and actually looking at change in barometric pressure, because um, that's usually associated with wind. You know, a whole host of things. Um, cause when you get a change in barometric pressure, it's usually windier. Um, you know, that one, that one would probably be a good one to look at. Yeah. And, and so I should be writing some of these ideas. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's just, you know, another one of those things that, that sometimes, you know, that some hunters put a lot of belief in, you know, whether or not barometric pressure, a certain barometric pressure results in, you know, better deer movement. So. I thought I would I would throw it out there since you you mentioned it there in passing, but yeah, sorry I haven't looked at that one. Yeah, yeah, it gave me an idea. But again, like you were mentioning there, I guess it, you know it may be kind of hard to tease out. Obviously, you could look at it, but then like you said there, there's often other factors associated with that change in barometric pressure that could actually be it may not be the pressure itself that's influencing them, but you know yeah. the, the resulting wind or rain or you know whatever. But mm-hmm. well. Based on, you know, what we talked about here today and, and what you've seen through through your extensive research with the, the Deer Force study, I guess what are what are some kind of key take home messages for for deer hunters, our listeners in regards to, you know, maybe when and, and how they should should hunt based on weather and other factors? <laughs> uh, well, let's see. 
the big one is um, I don't think you can use rain as an excuse not to go hunting. Um, uh, but but I'm the first to admit that there's um, pretty hard pressed to be able to stay out there all day, soaking wet and cold, and um, I'll I'll bag it myself. So I don't hold it against anyone if they don't hunt in the rain. And um, if you want to insist because the deer aren't moving, that's that's good enough for me. Um, yeah, I I think um, I think what I've found. Uh, sort of take home message for hunters. Um, you know, I, I, the bottom line is there's, there's so much variability. You know, I had one student, um, you know, we haven't talked about the moon cause we're focusing on weather, but you know, she, that's a big one with hunters and, and there's been gobs of time and money and, and things thinking and, uh, postulating and hypothesizing about the moon. And, and she did analysis and she said, yeah, um, on moonlit nights, they do tend to move a little bit more. But she said it would be like me making an extra trip to the bathroom. So um, these things certainly influence deer. I'm, I'm not going to say that they don't. But I think the take home message is that there's so much variability among individual deer that um, that that I just have not seen in any of the things we've looked at with wind or rain or moon, um, these strong signals that, um, that result in, in, uh, you know, big changes in deer movements and, and behavior. Um, but, it, but again, I, I think there's some caveats, um, my research that I've been doing for the past 10 years all takes place in large tracts of contiguous forest. So we never, we rarely think about habitat and how that influences their movements because it's almost all the same habitat or, or I don't have any measurements of it. And that's a whole nother podcast about understory vegetation and how that might influence deer and hunters and, and movements and that sort of thing. But, um, but if, if I were studying deer in, um, in a more fragmented landscape, which is a mix of, you know, forest and non-forested habitats, you might see some changes in behavior tied to habitat that we're not even thinking about in my study. Um, so if, if you were to address these questions, um, in a different region, you, you might find some answers and you might find some strong signals. Um, signals, I mean, in terms of uh, dramatic changes in deer behavior. Um, but, but for everything I can say is that it just individual deer are so variable that, yeah, there may be some patterns, but there's, I haven't found anything yet that would, that I would think would give me an added advantage, you know, especially if I was a archery hunter or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the take home message for me, um, not only from talking to you, but just, you know, pretty much everybody I've talked to over the course of doing this podcast is just um, hunt when you can. I mean, that's that's what it boils down to. And, and the the closer to the rut you get, then uh, you probably should 
you know, be spending more time out there because the deer deer movement's going to increase re- regardless of of weather and all these other factors. So, yeah, absolutely. Why right? it's it's like the lottery. If you don't buy a ticket, if you don't play, you're not going to win. <laughs> yeah, so. there you go. Well, good deal, Dwayne. I, I thanks so much for for taking time out again to come on the show. I know this is a a, a busy time of year for everybody, so I appreciate you carving out time to come on here and and talk about. Uh, the, the deer force study and, and what you guys are learning. And uh, yeah, I, I know I enjoyed the conversation. I know our listeners are going to enjoy it as well, but well, thank you. Um, yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to spread the word of our research. And uh, like I said, we've tried to make it fun and educational and, you know, if folks want to um, check us out, um, the website's pretty easy. It's just deer.psu.edu. And we try and we try to post a blog once a week, maybe twice a week, but usually lately it's usually been about once a week. Um, and uh, just give folks some answering questions or updating on research and um, trying to make it fun and interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I always look forward to them, and yeah, I would definitely in, encourage all our listeners to uh, to check out that site and sign up for your your newsletter where you get those notifications when those those articles post because they're they're always always interesting so yep we'll and we'll be sure to put a a link to all that in the the show notes if folks want to check that out but yeah uh, again i appreciate it and uh, enjoyed the talk all right thanks all right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dr. Dwayne Diefenbach. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter and, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, If it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And, of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.